Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of Generation Jihad. I'm Tom Jocelyn, and I'm joined again this week by my colleague, Bill Roggio. Hi, everyone. We're lining up some guests for future episodes. Uh, we still have to finalize those details, but this week it's just the two of us again. We're going to discuss Pakistan, uh, America's duplicitous ally in what was formerly known as the Global War on Terror. And I say formerly known as Global War on Terror because for years the U.S. military has been operating uh, under the pantheon of something called Overseas Contingency Operations. Right, Bill? That's one of your favorite phrases, I know. Yeah, it's a great euphemism for it. So, you know, the Obama administration wanted to get away from that war on terror, and that, that term came up, and it's about as meaningless as it gets. Yeah. Well, the two of us have been researching and reporting on Pakistani jihadi, jihadi groups for many years. Uh, we decided to discuss Pakistan this week because uh, recently a court there decided to overturn the convictions of Omar Saeed Sheikh. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Omar Saeed Sheikh is a very is a notorious figure who allegedly planned and carried out the kidnapping of Wall Street Journal reporter Daniel Pearl in early 2002. This was right in the aftermath of 9-11. These were when tensions were all-time high, and everybody was, of course, on edge with the terrorist threat. And Pearl's kidnapping and murder was sort of a, a flashpoint internationally. He, After he was kidnapped, Pearl was beheaded by Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the chief planner of the 9-11 hijackings, uh, often known as KSM. Uh, he wasn't captured until more than a year later in March 2003 in the Pakistani city of Rawalpindi. KSM remains in detention at Guantanamo Bay to this day. Omar Saeed Sheikh is alleged. Blah. Let me start. Sorry again. Omar Saeed Sheikh, his alleged accomplice, remains imprisoned as well. There's hope that a higher Pakistani court will vacate the decision to overturn his convictions, and the Pakistanis have wisely decided to keep Omar Saeed and his comrades in prison for the time being. Still, this whole episode is a good example of the long-standing problems that America has had with Pakistan, especially when it comes to Pakistan's relationship with jihadists, including groups allied with Al Qaeda. After all, as some of you know, our website, FTD's Long War Journal, is banned in Pakistan and has been for some time. Uh, reporters and others have told us a uh, long time ago that they can only access the site through proxy servers in Pakistan. Bill, yeah, you, you, you remember that, Bill, and how that, how that all went down when we first found out about uh, the, the site being uh, banned in Pakistan. Yeah, Tom. It's, uh, so the Long War Journal has been banned in Pakistan for going on eight years now. It'll be eight years this summer. Um, you know, look, and I think this it's, it's hard to say with so many, but this might be my greatest or our greatest professional um, accomplishment. We've the Pakistani government recognized us, recognized the threat that we pose to their narrative, and they've silenced us inside Pakistan. I was first, uh, you know, in the spring, late, late spring, early summer of 2012, I start getting contacted by reporters who were operating in Pakistan and also some readers as well. And they're saying, hey, Bill, how come, you know, is your website down? What's going on? And I was very perplexed. And then um, I was then contacted by a, an individual in Pakistan who I will not name because he'll probably wind up dead if so. And I was talking with him, and he was able to confirm to talk to someone within Pakistan's basically what's equivalent to their information ministry, um, and was able to confirm that the that the Long War Journal has indeed been banned, and the primary reason for banning us was our narrative, how we explained what the Pakistani state does to support jihadists, how it plays. And we'll get into the details of this as we go further in the episode, how they they play favorites within the Taliban and jihadist groups. They fight some and and then they support others. Um, So, you know, this reporting and our reporting is listened to a lot in the U.S. military and state and um, various levels of government. So the Pakistanis did not like this and they did not want this message being broadcast throughout Pakistan. So they banned us. So people that are inside Pakistan have to get through us through a proxy server or other means if they try to go through one of the Pakistani um, uh, internet service providers they, they just won't be able to hear us they won't be able to hear it well they might be able to hear our podcast but they um, certainly won't be able to read the long war journal online so you know what's ridiculous about this of course is that while we're banned in Pakistan many jihadists aren't so you can find jihadi content coming out of Pakistan quite regularly of course we monitor some websites that are producing content based on the Pakistani jihadi scene very regularly those aren't banned but we are and of course our reporting is just based on the facts of what's going on so if those facts are inconvenient for certain people well so be it but let's give some brief history here on America's relationship with Pakistan and its role in jihadism uh, going back to the Cold War. Of course, it was during the Cold War that Pakistan was America's ally. 
And it was at that time the U.S., Saudi Arabia, and other nations contributed to the Mujahideen's cause in Afghanistan. And, of course, it was back then, at that time, America's priority was to defeat the Soviets. So if you look around online, you could find a lot of different stories dealing with that era. Of course, we're not going to recount all of it here. But you also will see some stories suggesting that um, the U.S. was somehow working directly or was in cahoots with Osama bin Laden during the 1980s. And thus far, we haven't seen any evidence showing that is true. We've seen evidence showing that's almost certainly not true. And a lot of the Mujahideen who were fighting in Afghanistan at the time, they didn't go on to join al-Qaeda or, or any kind of international terrorist group. However, the U.S. did work with some unsavory characters, including they worked directly with a man uh, named Jalaluddin Haqqani. And his legacy is an important part of our story this week. America's support for the Mujahideen, uh, has, including Haqqani, has been romanticized in works such as George Krill's book, Charlie Wilson's War, which was turned into a movie starring Tom Hanks in the titular role. Well, Wilson, a congressman, a colorful congressman from Texas, uh, once described Akani as goodness personified. I think Bill and I would probably invert that and say he's more like badness personified, or was. Uh, in fact, the reality, that's because the reality of his life, his dossier, gives you exactly the opposite perception of what Charlie Wilson said about him. And, and Tom, when uh, you wrote an article um, on his death, I believe that was the title that you, you used. Is that correct? Yeah, it was badness personified. It was inverting Charlie Wilson's description, exactly. Um, and you can see you can find that long word journal. Maybe we'll link to it in the post of this uh, week's podcast. But Akani was one of the most infamous and duplicitous characters in the history of jihadism. In fact, Bill's reporting on the Akani Network's operations in Afghanistan is probably part of what got us banned. I bet uh, because the Akani's have been yeah, Akani's have long been ban- have long been headquartered in Pakistan. Uh, and and Akani was duplicitous because even though he was at one point a CIA asset uh, in the 1980s. Haqqani harbored some deeply anti-American views, and he also was the chief benefactor of Osama bin Laden himself. In fact, Haqqani gave bin Laden and al-Qaeda's earliest cadres a foothold in Afghanistan, where some of al-Qaeda's earliest leaders were actually trained in camps in eastern Afghanistan that were run by the Haqqanis. Um, Haqqani remained an al-Qaeda man until his dying day, which according to the Taliban came sometime in 2018. In fact, when he was Finally, his death was recognized by the Taliban. It was interesting to watch who eulogized him, including al-Qaeda senior leadership, the Taliban, and others. It shows this sort of convergence of interests around this figure as, as well as others. In any event, today, his son, Sir Juden Haqqani, is the deputy emir of the Taliban's Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. That's the organization that they're trying to resurrect throughout the entirety of the country. They're trying to resurrect their totalitarian emirate. And a wealth of evidence, including files recovered in Osama bin Laden's compound, show that Siraj is, like his father before him, closely allied with al-Qaeda to this day. And while the U.S. broke off its relationship with the Qanis in the 1980s, the Pakistani military intelligence establishment never did. Uh, indeed, the Pakistanis have provided the Qanis with safe haven and likely more ever since. And the Qanis aren't alone. Other Taliban leaders and members have sheltered in Pakistan for years, allowing them to direct much of the insurgency in Afghanistan from Quetta and other locales we're going to get into. And again, that's probably why we drew the ire of the Pakistanis, because Bill was on this very early, uh, like a pit bull, explaining to readers how so much of this insurgency in Afghanistan was really being run from Pakistan. And, And those are, of course, uncomfortable facts for a lot of people. In fact, I think when the history of the Afghan war is written, I think the role of those Pakistani safe havens will loom large. I think those safe havens are one of the main reasons the Taliban-led insurgency has been able to come roaring back after the group apparently suffered a swift defeat in late 2001. I say apparently because this is something Bill and I talk about quite often. In a future episode of Generation Jihad, we're going to re-examine the initial U.S.-led campaign in Afghanistan. Because, Bill, you agree, right, that, that the short version is we don't think that that campaign was nearly as successful as claimed at the time or in the years since. After all, Osama bin Laden got away, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, you're right. This is a this is a whole nother episode. But yes, I, I would have done things a lot differently to ensure that bin Laden didn't get away, that the other al-Qaeda operatives uh, would uh, would not have gotten away, would not have relied on local forces, local mil- Afghan militias who were uh, very pliable, to, to put it uh, mildly. Um, I would have sent in the full might of the U.S. military court in that area, and nothing would have walked out alive if it didn't surrender. And the bottom line is, of course, hindsight is twenty twenty. but from our perspective, hindsight should also get the historical record correct, and the initial invasion of Afghanistan was not nearly as successful. I know I'm repeating myself now, but it's true. Not nearly as successful as a lot of people uh, claim. In any event, besides the Taliban, there are other jihadist groups that have prospered inside Pakistan, uh, including several organizations that were involved in the Daniel Pearl kidnapping. Um, you know, the, the interesting thing about the Daniel Pearl story is that when you look at all the organizations that were involved in it, and there were several from the alphabet soup that exists in Afghanistan, 
what you find is that Al-Qaeda has its hooks into several different organizations at the time. And none of that was really properly accounted for in accounting of what Al-Qaeda looked like or how it works. And it's still part of the story to this day. But of course, that story isn't a one-way street. Uh, some of the jihadists in Pakistan have boomeranged back against the Pakistani state, including the Pakistani Taliban, uh, which is also closely allied with Al-Qaeda. In fact, Pakistani citizens are among the jihadists' principal victims. And I think that's a fact we shouldn't lose sight of here uh, when we talk about this country. Of course, none of this is about demonizing the average Pakistani. Far from it. Uh, I think Bill and I think and have concluded over the years that a lot of what the military and intelligence establishment is doing is Pakistan ultimately hurts their own citizens. Yeah, Tom, the, 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 the real – this is the real horrific thing is that it, what Pakistan with its military and intelligence service and elements of government has done is set up tens of thousands of its own citizens to the slaughter of groups like the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan and other jihadist groups that are allied with them. They are directly complicit um, for the murder of their own citizens because their foreign policy of supporting jihadists who will support their strategic depth is far more important to them than their own citizens' safety. And we'll get into that a little bit more, and that's a longstanding part of the cultural problem here going back decades now that's, that's evolved. Um, you know, Pakistan's actions have certainly bedeviled American policymakers for years, and the U.S. has struggled to come up with a consistent set of policies for dealing with Pakistani duplicity. Uh, including Pakistan's ongoing sponsorship of various jihadist groups. Bill, I thought we would start, um, you know, sort of reviewing all this and getting into exactly what you were just talking about in terms of how these policies have hurt Pakistan itself. Um, but I think we'd start with the days immediately after 9-11, when the State Department drew up this list of demands for the Pakistani state. And for listeners who may not remember, Secretary of State Colin Powell and Deputy Secretary of State Dick Armitage at the time, they drew up a list of seven demands for the Pakistanis, and they delivered these in the days after 9-11. Pervez Musharraf, who was then the Pakistani president, purportedly agreed to meet these demands. Uh, this is a big deal. It's in his memoirs. It's in several accounts of the time. Um, but did Pakistan really comply with this list of demands? And the short answer that Bill and I have come to is no, not entirely, and certainly not over the past 18 plus years. So, Bill, let's go through them. And if you, our listeners, want to follow along at home, the demands that we're going to talk about here at the outset uh, can be found on page 331 of the 9-11 Commission Report. This is one of several sources you can get them from, but it's probably the cleanest. And so what I would like to do is go through each of the seven demands that the Pakistanis reportedly agreed to comply with, and then Bill and I are going to discuss them. We're going to start with the first one, the most obvious one, which is that um, the Pakistanis would stop al-Qaeda operatives at its border and end all logistical support for bin Laden. So that's the first demand. And Bill, how, what, what would you say about their performance in that regard? I would say um, this is probably one where they somewhat look it's it's a really tough one bin laden being killed in abadabad you and i believe that elements of the pakistani state know that he was there right um so i would say they didn't comply with this it's a tough border they did round up some al-qaeda operatives at the onset they allowed a drone campaign to target al-qaeda but then they complained when it killed members of the Pakistan or the Afghan Taliban or the Haqqanis particularly, of course, which is an integral part of the Taliban. So, you know, it's a mixed bag. But in, at the end of the day, I personally believe that if the Pakistani state wanted to round up every single al-Qaeda operative and every ally of al-Qaeda, it could do so. It knows where they are. And if it doesn't know where they are, they would bring in people to find out who they, who, where they, where they are sheltering. You know, I, of course I agree, and I, I would say that the reason why you're saying it's a mixed bag, and I agree with this, is because in that initial outset here, after um, Dick Armitage of the State Department reportedly threatened Pakistan in some colorful language, and these demands were, were given to them, there certainly was cooperation in those first couple of years after 9-11 in terms of providing the U.S. with some support in hunting down operatives, but I, I always am hesitant to give them too much credit because we know right. of guys who got away. We know of guys who got away, and of course, there have been Laden, as you said, showing up in Abbottabad, where we know that Pakistani-sponsored jihadist groups, um, including Harakat al-Mujahideen, which we're going to get into a little bit later, um, we know that they were part of the courier network that was bringing messages to and from bin Laden, and that's a Pakistani-sponsored organization. So, and we know that Bin Laden from the Bin Laden files actually was able to negotiate with parts of the Pakistani government from his safe haven, which is obviously curious. How does he able to to reach out through his minions and, and negotiate a ceasefire at times? Um, the bottom line is that we're suspicious, of course, about that whole thing. But I agree, it's a mixed bag. Yes, they provided some help, but overall, part of the story here, part of the reason why Al Qaeda is alive in 2020, it's not all the reasons, but one of the reasons is because they didn't do quite enough. Yeah, and and to just to, you know. 
the fact that the overlap of these groups, right? So you have Harkat al-Mujahideen or you have um, Jaish Muhammad or you have Lashkar-e Taiba. The, the Pakistani government wasn't going to move against these groups and still doesn't move against these groups. And these groups support al-Qaeda. Therefore, you know, if you want to roll up at the al-Qaeda network, you have to get all of the tentacles. You can't just chop off one arm of the octopus and say everything's fine. And that's the real problem in all this. That's part of, you know, Pakistan trying to play both ends, trying to placate the United States, trying to take out Al-Qaeda, but not taking out its pet terror groups. Therefore, the terror groups survive. It's a, it, it's a net win for them at the end of the day. So now the second item is uh, the, on the list of the demands of the State Department of Pakistan was to give the United States, this is a quote, folks, to give the United States blanket overflight and landing rights for all necessary military and intelligence operations. Bill, go. Yeah, I, I would say this might be one of the only uh, of, of all the seven listed here, the one that they probably f- followed through. Now, there are times where there's been tensions with the United States where they've uh, restricted access to certain air bases and whatnot um, when the U.S. drone campaign was at its height inside Pakistan. Um, so, and again, it's part of this problem. The U.S. wasn't just targeting al-Qaeda. It was targeting members of the um, Pakistani terror groups and even members of the Afghan Taliban slash Haqqani network. And the Pakistanis began to protest over this. So at times they would shut down an air base. They shut down a base that was used for drones. But, you know, this is probably as close that um, we could get to, to them, to us saying that the, they followed through on, on, on one of the demands. And, you know, to our listeners, I'm kicking myself right now because I had a, a point about the first po- uh, bullet point. I'm going to come back to it right now because I, I can't believe I forgot to say this because I've, I've obsessed on this for, for about you know <laughs> close to 20 years. And I, and I got my shot and I didn't say it. But here it is. That first bullet point includes the phrase, end all logistical support for bin Laden. Well, isn't that curious? That means the State Department's position was that the Pakistanis were providing logistical exactly. support for bin Laden and had to, had to end that support. And so that's a very curious sort of phrase that stands out in history here. Um, I got that off my chest, but we're going to move on to the third uh, bullet point now, which is, and this is, again, the State Department's list of demands of the Pakistanis, uh, to provide territorial access to U.S. and allied military intelligence and other personnel to conduct operations against al-Qaeda. Yeah, again, a mixed bags. Um, the U.S. had a base for drones in that was located in Balochistan. It had intel, you know, intelligence operatives and military were based in various areas in Pakistan. Yet they were prohibited from going into places like the the FATA, the federally administered tribal agencies. This is where North and South Waziristan and other tribal agencies are located. This was the heart of al-Qaeda's base in Pakistan. It wasn't just there. And by the way, that was a very myopic for the U.S. to focus on al-Qaeda just in, in North and South Waziristan. But that's a whole different discussion. Um, so the few times that the U.S. launched uh, cross-border raids with uh, with personnel, they were uh, they were protested vigorously by the by the um, the Pakistani government, they would issue statements. Um, so yeah, again, it's 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 a mixed bag, and it the U.S. also has been risk averse in operating in places like and and rightfully so. These were these are the heart of darkness: North Set Waziristan, South South Waziristan, Khyber, Orakazai, um, all the all the tribal areas were really Taliban and Al Qaeda havens. Um, at the especially at the you know up until about 2012 and by the time 2012 rolled around the U.S. desire to actually engage in Pakistan really started to drop off so you know again I would just call this a mixed bag um, but it, it's a net win for the jihadists because the U.S. never really got to get in there and root it out we had successful operations with the drone campaign and killed very senior al-Qaeda leaders during and military leaders bomb makers guys who were plotting against the West um, and so on and so on but Al-Qaeda still exists today. So the campaign had a lot of tactical success, but did not lead to the strategic collapse of Al-Qaeda. And, you know, it's interesting. I remember uh, one of the files recovered Bin Laden's compound that you and I have talked about for a while, in which Atiyah Abdelrahman, his uh, Libyan lieutenant, who was really sort of his aide-de-camp at the time of Bin Laden's death, uh, Rahman is, is sort of summarizing the Al-Qaeda operations at the time. And this is sort of mid-2010, the peak of the drone campaign, when this is supposed to be the death knell for Al-Qaeda. And Rahman says, 
um, that basically the Al-Qaeda organization is not operating on a high tempo, it's, but it's not operating on a low tempo either. It was operating at a medium tempo. And this was at the in sort of the height of the drone campaign at a time when they're supposed to be pinned in waiting for the last final kill strike. And, of course, that, that final kill strike didn't come even with the death of bin Laden Al-Qaeda survived. Um, so let's move on to the next one. The next one on the list, this is number four, was to provide the United States with intelligence information. Well, that's pretty broad. Bill? Yeah, um, again, we were able to capture some key al-Qaeda leaders in, in the cities. As you mentioned, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the, the planner, the chief uh, executor of 9-11. He, we captured him in Rawalpindi. So you did have FBI and, and CIA operating and capturing some, uh, some al-Qaeda um, but again, not the satellite groups that support them. Um, the, not only did the you know groups like Lashkari Taiba and Jaish Muhammad, not only did they survive, but they thrived. I mean, so the U.S. Look, I mean, good example. The head of Lashkari Taiba has a five million dollar bounty on his head, right? It's probably been what ten years, maybe, or that he you know he's a specially designated global terror terrorist. His his group Lashkari Taiba is on. The uh, far, is a far, declared foreign terrorist organization. Even in Pakistan, it's listed as a terrorist organization, and yet he's on TV. He's in an, um, He meets with Pakistani generals and and political figures, and he runs. He has a whole town where where they train Lashkari Taiba fighters. He's currently in prison right now, but he's been in and out of prison numerous times merely to placate the West. This time he's in prison because Pakistan was get, getting going to get put on something called the gray list, which would have um, hindered their ability to conduct financial uh, transactions globally. So then they have to show that they're doing something. But then a court will come along and overturn his conviction and he'll be back out. You know, he's basically the Teflon Don of, of Pakistan. Pakistan knows where he is. If they were co- providing intelligence and cooperating with the U.S., they'd pick him up off the street. They'd go to his home, knock on the door, slap cups on him, and send him to the United States. But they'll never do that because they're not fully cooperating with the United States. This is, of course, Hafez Saeed you're talking about. Yes, Hafez Saeed. Yes, yeah. correct. This is the guy who, who, when bin Laden was killed, uh, mourned him as a martyr. Yeah. Uh, on Pakistani te- television. On Pakistani television, yeah. All right, so the next one, uh, number five, is for the Pakistanis would continue to publicly condemn the terrorist attacks. Terrorist acts, sorry. So I guess that's publicly condemn 9-11 in particular because they certainly condemn some terrorist acts but not others right bill and we're going to get into that more we don't have to dwell on it too much here yeah no not won't dwell on that at all i mean only the attacks that it disapproved of um terrorist attacks against india for instance they were just fine um well you know it was selective just like they're selective against the groups that they target yep so the sixth point was to cut off all shipments of fuel to the taliban and stop recruits from going to afghanistan now uh, you know, what, 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 this this is an easy one. Uh, the bottom line is that you know, obviously, this did not happen. And it, it, you know, basically, there were interruptions. Obviously, the Pakistanis helped capture um, Al Qaeda members and others who were fleeing the Tora Bora Mountains in late 2001. They stopped some of the. They helped in, in shutting off some of the retreat that Al Qaeda had, but not all of it. Um, but in terms of going the other way, going back into Afghanistan, well, this is the big problem, right? This is one of the biggest problems is that this cross-border traffic has continued for years, right, Bill? Yeah, exactly. And I'll, I'll just give one hand, one example. There's a, a um, group, uh, its acronym is TNSM, and it's was led by a man named Sufi Muhammad. He just recently uh, passed away of natural causes uh, um, in, you know. Uh, so at the very onset of the, the U.S. invasion, uh, Sufi Muhammad he sent more than 10,000 fighters to um, go ahead and fight with the Taliban inside uh, Afghanistan. A um, couple of years later, his son, um, Mullah Fazula, he became the head of what became the, the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan. He became their head of um, their operations in a district known as SWAT. Um, and then he later became the emir of the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan. And, of course, that group um, was openly at war with uh the pakistani government and we'll get you know we'll get into this uh took over a large area of, of the northwest frontier province and all of the fata for several years we have story after story of this with with pakistan and it's it just you know i could sit there and say he's the guy that shows why pakistan's duplicitous until i look at the next guy and the next guy and the next guy yeah and part of the problem there too is of course there's a stack of u.s 
terrorist designations identifying facilitators in Pakistan who are working for the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, and others and sending recruits over the border into Afghanistan. So we're going to give them an F on that one. Uh, Absolutely. So F minus, is that possible? I don't think that's possible, but but we can can trademark it, whatever. Sure. Uh, And so the seventh one was, um, and I love this one. If the evidence implicated bin Laden and Al Qaeda, <laughs> and, and the and the Taliban continue to harbor him, harbor them, meaning Al Qaeda and bin Laden, then the Pakistanis would have to break relations with the Taliban government. Well, uh, no, this didn't happen. Uh, this is this is the one that's probably the biggest one on the list because the whole point here today is the Taliban has been fighting to resurrect its Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, as we said. And this has been a Pakistani-sponsored endeavor, basically, uh, to resurrect the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. And so uh, quite the opposite of breaking relations with the Taliban government, the Pakistani safe havens have played an instrumental role in the Taliban resurrecting its government and attempting to do so. Yeah, that's that's absolutely correct. It's, uh, you know, look, I am of the mind that that the Taliban would have been a shadow of itself if it did not have the state support of oh bill you use shadow of its former self I know. oh I, bill I, you use that phrase that's the that's the old obama phrase that's now being repeated I, by uh, secretary pompeo got to turn it back others. on him tom yeah i mean <laughs> it, you, you could you could set up the criteria for what would actually take to be a shadow of your former <laughs> self uh, but but this the, we're laughing because this phrase is just sort of mindlessly repeated by american officials yeah. and it, it shows that they're not really thinking about this when they say stuff like this you know? my tongue is in my cheek tom as i said yeah I, I know it is but i don't know i just want to make sure listeners understand that uh you know yeah that's the case <laughs> Anyway, so, so I mean, you know, Bill, one of the things that you turned me on to early on was that the Pakistanis were talking about the difference between the good Taliban and the bad Taliban. And I remember you writing this up, and I was just thinking, what? You know, and, and this ended up becoming a big thing that I ended up having to deal with in my career when I was doing lectures and everything else, and we'll talk about that a little bit. But get into explain to people what this whole game is with the good Taliban and the bad Taliban for Pakistan. Yeah, it, it really, and, and to first to be clear here, this isn't something I made up as a construct, right? This is something that emerged from the Pakistani secure, um, security establishment, right? They came up with this idea, well, there's good Taliban and there's bad Taliban. We'll work, we, the Pakistanis, will work with the good Taliban and we'll fight the bad Taliban. Well, what is a good Taliban and what is a, a bad Taliban? Um, from Tom and our, my perspective, there's no there's it's a distinction without difference there is no such thing they're all bad they all have the same goals it's just here's what the good let me explain what the good taliban is the good taliban to the pakistanis are these are the ones who don't battle the pakistani state and they forward pakistan's national security goals particularly in places like indian held kashmir and in afghanistan right so it doesn't have to just be Taliban. So groups like Lashkari Taiba that primarily fight in, in Kashmir, but also fight in Afghanistan. The Afghan Taliban, of course, are good Taliban. That's why they're supported by the Pakistani state. Um, and, and that whole alphabet soup of jihadist groups, uh, Jaish Muhammad and, and Harkad al-Mujahideen and Hezbollah al-Mujahideen and so on and so on. They're all good Taliban because they play nice against the Pakistani state. Um, Pakistan sets training camps up, particularly for the the Kashmir-based jihadists, right? And they arm them, they train them. Lashkari Taiba's raid in India in Mumbai in December 2007, that was carried out by Lashkari Taiba with with ISI, the Inter-Service Intelligence Agency, Pakistan's Inter-Service Intelligence uh, Directorate. That's uh, their military intelligence. Members of that were directing the operations, giving orders and advice to the fighters as they're they're slaughtering people in hotels and 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 on the streets that's the those good, are good that's the that's the good taliban that's the good folks. taliban people right. yeah um you know, so the ones killing americans and afghans and and anyone else they can get their hands on especially inside of indians. afghanistan especially yeah, indians. indians yep and look and this is all born on the pakistan strategy of strategic depth um we could do a whole show on that, but we won't. But strategic depth basically is Pakistan recognizes that it's it's smaller and has less resources than its mortal enemy, India. So what does it do? It it uses asymmetrical warfare to and as well as um to to battle the Indians. It views these people that'll come to their their defense if there is a true war with India. And Afghanistan is literally a territorial strategic depth where they believe if the if the Indians do invade. Pakistan can move 
some of its forces across the Hindu Kush into Afghanistan and have that sort of line to, to keep their operations going. So the and again they they believe the Indian the um I'm sorry they believe the good Taliban will back them with that they certainly back them by conducting terror attacks against India and its and and the West and the other part about this too Bill is it's not just of course um, sort of real politique um, strategy for you know yes. depth in the region there there is a convergence here on ideology this yes. ideology sunk in within the pack parts of the Pakistan establishment not all of it obviously some are real politikers others are real real believers and then others are sort of opposed to this as we'll get into a little bit uh, within the Pakistan military intelligence establishment but um, the bottom line is part of the frightening aspect in all this is that there are a certain number of true believers within Pakistan and the military intelligence establishment and that's sort of part of what I worry about long run in all this yeah and and the true believers and the the real politik you know realists whatever you would call them um, they definitely outnumber the, the ones who oppose it. Because there are members in, inside Pakistan's uh, intelligence service and militaries who, who have supported the fight um, against the, the bad Taliban, and, um, and as, as well as the good Taliban. But, uh, you know, sometimes I, I actually think, and I can't prove this, but I have a feeling that a lot of them have been rolled out as cannon fodder in the battles in, in the Fatah and the Northwest Frontier Province. So what is the good Taliban, right? Um, I'm sorry, so we we just went through the good Taliban. What is the bad Taliban? These are the jihadists who oppose the Pakistani state and commit violence against the Pakistani state. The number one on this list is a group called the Movement of the Taliban in Pakistan. It's basically, it's what we call the Pakistani Taliban. That's why we have to use the term Afghan Taliban, Pakistan. You know, Bill, it's probably good to give a little insert here to, to tell people about um, how in May 2010, you know, you first learned that the Pakistani Taliban was behind the Times Square bombing uh, with Faisal Shahzad. This is how closely you and I have been covering this group yeah. and what they're doing in Pakistan, that they gave you a hat tip to say that they were responsible for it. It's worth maybe just giving a few sentences on yeah, that. Yeah, sure. And, and you know, it, again, you know, I think I'd mentioned this on a previous episode. It's another moment in your career where you really wait. You can't take enough showers to take the stink, stench off this one. It was a, a, a great scoop and um, really helped explain our, our worldview and put us, you know, gave us a, a lot of credibility. And yet it comes from a, a group that I despise. So the, I believe it was May 1st, May 2nd, the night that the um, Faisal Shahzad, he attempted to detonate a car bomb in uh, Times Square, New York City. Thank goodness it didn't go off, but they release. Uh, so, I'm, you know, we're up, we're tracking everything. I'm looking at my email and I get this email from, it says TTP spokesman. TTP is Tariqi Taliban Pakistan, which is movement of the Taliban in Pakistan. It says TTP spokesman at gmail.com. And I'm like, hmm. And it says, he says, we like your work mostly. <laughs> and we mostly, have mostly, mostly meaning you had reported accurately that Hakamullah Masood had survived a drone yes. strike. And right. they, they were very happy that you were saying he was alive. So Yeah, for, I have to take a step back on that one. So everyone had reported Hakimullah Masood. Is, he was the head of the movement of the Taliban Pakistan in January of this year. And he was dead in so many different ways that there was not a credible report of his death. He was killed in a drone strike. He was killed in a battle um, with Pakistani forces. He was killed in a, in a meeting between the, the Taliban leaders, Pakistani Taliban leaders. He was killed by his driver. Um, you know, his wife put a knife in his back. You, you for, our, it, so. for our for our fellow nerds out there, he was basically the Pakistani equivalent of Mukhtar Bel Mukhtar. You know, yes. sort of these jihadi vampires who they just can't they can't be killed. I mean, you, that, you you know, you could in fact you could cut his head off and put a spike through his heart, and you'd still would have to I'd have to believe it to see it that he's actually dead. Exactly. Know? I mean, and the dates were different of his death. And you're right. I mean, you you in in our opinion, they are vampires. You need to drive a straight stake through the heart. Um, and even then, off and even then, I'm not, the sunlight. I'm not, I'm not buying it even <laughs> then, you know, so, in any, in any and event, so, yeah, yeah, so we get the, I get, I get this email and I'm watching these videos start uploading on YouTube and I'm like, what the hell is this? I didn't know if it was a gag or whatever. And then once the video uploads, I could see there's like two views on it. I'm the second. I see, lo and behold, it's Haki Mullah Masood and Faisal Shahzad. And I believe they were holding up a newspaper or something to, to well, no, actually, no. It was, they, they actually claimed the the attack, right, or the attempted attack. So I knew it right there. I have two scoops. I got, well, Hakimullah Masood is definitely alive, all right? I got that one right. 
And here we go. Here's the Times Square bomber meeting with him. Um, so now we didn't know at the time that Faisal Shahzad was the guy, but you know, so um, then we also had one from his the head of his suicide bombers um, uh, uh, that he was also meeting with. Uh, if I recall correctly, he was meeting with uh, with Faisal Shahzad as well. So you had a you had a re- I had a story here, and in the meantime, I believe the the Obama administration was saying, "Oh, this could be right wing terrorism. This could be this. This could be that." Yeah, I mean, here attorney, I sit- uh, attorney General Eric Holder didn't know who it was. I you know it was right. funny. We're watching this video, and you had U- U.S. officials didn't. I mean, I'm not blaming them or criticizing them. They just no. didn't know at that time. They didn't have the intelligence to know. And yet here's this video on YouTube from this guy who's happy that you're reporting that he's alive and saying, you know, basically we did it. And this this is this is to tie a bow on it. This is the bad Taliban because they attack not only us but also the Pakistani state. Right. They want it. They're the ones that are not that the good Taliban aren't on board with the global jihad. By the way, they are. I mean, Lashkar Taiba wants to establish, wants to help establish a global caliphate. No, 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 that, Bill. You, you haven't heard. Secretary of State tells us that the Taliban has uh, renounced Al Qaeda and is going to destroy it. So <laughs> yeah, right, you got you exactly. to get, get with the talking points, Bill. You know. Yeah, I, I just uh, tend not to. Uh, what can I say? Yeah. So the the bad, you know, these are, but to the Pakistanis, right? The bad Taliban, you know. Uh, Islamic movement in Uzbekistan, they they launched a lot of attacks. Obviously, a group like the Islamic State would be bad Taliban to them. So they, um, that in a nutshell is the um, is that good Taliban, bad Taliban. Now and, here's and again, the problem again, with it. Yeah, well, let me just say with the bad Taliban. Of course, again, just to emphasize this, I mean these guys have killed an awful lot of Pakistanis. You yes. know, I mean this, this these guys have killed more Pakistanis than anybody else. You know, so you know this is this is where the policy has really. Um, hurt Pakistanis themselves. And now, now you get into the problem, Bill. Explain why this is the problem, yeah, the whole thing, how I, it works. And I'll go back to Sufi Muhammad, right? He was a good Taliban until he became a bad Taliban. He was sent, he sent tens of thousands, over 10,000 fighters to fight the U.S. inside Afghanistan. Um, and um, But then they wind up turning on the Pakistani state. There was a an incident... Um, and I don't want to go into the full details, but there's a place called the Red Mosque, and they declare in in Islamabad, and they declare Sharia, and they start enforcing Sharia on the state, the streets, and the Pakistani government uh, and the military, are like, oh boy, like you know, it was all all was well and good when it was confined out to the fringes of Balochistan and and in the Fatah and whatnot. Um, where Al Qaeda, by the way, was establishing its, its its Islamic Emirates. Uh, they had actually called it the Islamic Emirate of Waziristan. Um, so, so much as if you listen to last week's episode, so much for the notion that uh, the Islamic State was the first one to declare an Islamic Emirate. Um, this was going back on back in two thousand three, four, five, and so when you had the Red Mosque, right? We'll go back to the Red Mosque. This happens. the The government has to move on it. They're they're beating people in the streets, hauling them off, assaulting police officers, and they're going block by block and expanding their control and forcing Shari- their version of Sharia. So the military raids the the Lal Majid or Red Mosque. Um, they capture one of its two founders uh, and and head clerics, and uh, they you know and some people are killed. So this was like a turning point for all of, for many of the good Taliban, right? So shortly after this, you have the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan is formed. Now, not all of the Taliban groups in the tribal areas joined them. They, they stayed away, but they still supported the bad Taliban, the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan. Then you had an uprising. You had an insurgency. They take over the tribe, all of the tribal areas. Nearly all of them, except for like the, 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 the agency capitals in a couple of places. North and South Waziristan are fully controlled by the Taliban. Most of Khyber was. It, it was just a mess. And then they started expanding beyond into the Northwest Frontier province. So the tribal areas was like a very, think of it like, um, in terms like what like Guam or or um, or Puerto Rico, they're part of 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 America, but not a full state. That's how the tribal areas they were sort of specially governed. So they were considered the Wild West of, and still are considered the Wild West of Pakistan. They um, so the Taliban were in control of those, but they decide they're going to start expanding their influence from 2007 and to 2010. They took take over numerous districts in the Northwest Frontier Province. So, yeah, it was the operations by the bad Taliban, but the good Taliban facilitated this. There's no way that North Waziristan can come under control of, uh, well, the TTP without 
Hafiz Gulbahadur and his fighters backing, as well as the Haqqanis. The Haqqanis are based in Miram Shah in North Waziristan. They have a big mosque and um, whatnot. And Same in fa- thing. And in, in fact, and in fact, with the Haqqanis, I mean, one of the things that's been amply demonstrated is the Haqqanis have harbored and worked with the Pakistani Taliban. And right, I mean, this is how complicated and insidious this all gets: is that the Af- the Pakistani state is in bed with the Haqqanis. Well, meanwhile, the Haqqanis are in bed with the Pakistani Taliban, which is attacking the Pakistani state. So it's what it's what we've called the wheel of jihad, right? I mean, we sort of had, you yeah. know, basically, if you had, in, if you gave a Game of Thrones with that character Danny, she wanted to break the wheel of power, right? Corrupt, right? Well, we have this wheel of jihad in Pakistan, and, and nobody's broken it; it's still spinning. So yeah, yeah exactly. So, so and and often, you know, I've heard from let's just say intelligence officials that they would believe that Haqqani fighters would just basically, Oh, well today we're going to go fight with the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan. And then tomorrow we'll be the Haqqani network again. And we'll go operate in Afghanistan. That's how things worked. That's how, so the good Taliban what was considered good Taliban by the Pakistani state was directly complicit in what the bad Taliban was doing. By 2009, the Taliban seized control of this district called Buner. Um, this was after several successive peace deals. The Pakistani government actually negoti- negotiated peace with the Taliban in several um, of the tribal areas. And, and you know, Bill, as districts. you say, as you say in this, Bill, I'm kicking myself for not making more of a point of this when we were critiquing the current "quote unquote" deal with peace deal, really, it's a withdrawal deal between the U.S. and the, and the Afghan Taliban, because the Taliban has a whole history of cutting similar yeah. type deals and and using them to their advantage. But go ahead. And it, and you know, people will argue, well, that's the uh, that's the Pakistani Taliban, and this isn't this is the the Afghan Taliban. They're com- two completely we're right, different. Yeah, we're, we're right back to good Taliban, bad Taliban, right? And the pathology of the Pakistanis. Yeah. Then you know, and, and meanwhile, they fight the same, they operate the same, they think the same. The Afghan Taliban support the Pakistani Taliban, and the Pakistani Taliban support the Afghan Taliban. The Pakistani Taliban swear allegiance to the Afghan Taliban's Amir. Hmm, maybe they might be part of the same network. So when the when the Pakistan when the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan seized Buner, and by the way, they're also getting close to Pakistan's nuclear storage um, and weapons production facilities um, in the Northwest Frontier Province, and that was freaking a lot of people out, um, both in U.S. government as well, of course, in the Pak- in the Pakistani government, because those Pakistani nukes are the only they believe the only thing keeping India from invading and and reconquering Pakistan. It was a very very tricky. At this point, the Pakistani military decided realize that, well, maybe those good Taliban aren't so good, or the, the, those Taliban aren't the good Taliban or what we thought they were. They're actually bad Taliban. So they fought them, and they retook control of the districts and, and much of the, um, the, uh, the tribal areas as well. But the, TT, the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan still operates in these areas, in, in a lot of the tribal agencies. They, they straddle both sides of the border. But one thing where you could see the, the mindset of the Pakistani military was um, in, we'll go back to Mumbai, right? Um, in December, 2007. And this is when that war, the the Taliban's conquering of the Northwest frontier province was going on. Lashkari Taiba attacks Mumbai. Pakistan is going into full strategic depth mode here. And you actually had a core commander, let the game on, let, let out um, or give you a view of what was how they think. And in an, in an interview, he described the movement of the Taliban as their, and this is a quote, wayward brothers, um, end quote. And then he implored them to come back to the fold. He, he said, look, you know, you may have killed a lot of our people and we fight you, but we need to get together and fight our real enemy, the Indians here. And by the way, as we've now seen in the Bin Laden files, this is the, the files captured in Abbottabad when Bin Laden was killed, you know. Senior Pakistan, uh, senior Al Qaeda officials, senior Al Qaeda leaders reviewed the Pakistani Taliban sh- charter and edited it. Um, you know, you could see that yes, yeah. the, the Al Qaeda leaders complained about some Pakistani Taliban operations, but yeah. there's a clear influence there over their operations, and they clearly see them. Uh, I I think and you think as a cutout. In fact, that's the State Department's official position about the the uh, Pakistani Taliban is that there's a symbiotic relationship. That's the State Department's words between the Pakistani Taliban and Al Qaeda and Al Qaeda, and we certainly have, have documented that many times. So this is why this this wheel becomes so insidious, right? You have the good Taliban being 
uh, sponsored by the Pakistani state. Meanwhile, they're working with the bad Taliban, which is attacking the Pakistani state, which is also, and they're also working with Al Qaeda. And so, where do you draw the line in all this? It becomes a total mess. Yeah, that that document is. I mean, and look, there's so many we could point to, and you know, the mess came off there. You know, the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan, its charter was being written and edited by Al Qaeda, and and people dismiss this as, see, the Taliban, the Pakistani Taliban doesn't like Al Qaeda, and because of the tone that was being used in it. But guess what? Uh, but by what we could see, what they were talking about, that was all went through. Um, from so. Again, a fascinating document. Of we're gonna one of we're many. gonna have to we're gonna have to get into that story more. I think when we do our Bin Laden file episodes, um, and it's gonna have to be episodes because I you know I still see people out there reporting inaccurate things about the Bin Laden files and what actually went down in Bin Laden's own role at the time of his death. And we've been compiling a sort of a last year of his life timeline of documents and files, which is absolutely fascinating. But you know the the bottom line is that 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 there that symbiotic relationship almost certainly exists to this day, and it's one of the things that hasn't been solved. But Bill, you've gotten you you've gotten to know some of the good guys in Pakistan as well, and there was sort of one story that you and I were talking about earlier that we just had to include in the podcast this week. Why don't you talk about a little bit about that? About your invite, your invitation to Pakistan? Yeah, th- this is interesting, and and this is the thing that it's it's really difficult, um, or it, it's difficult for a lot of people to you know everybody wants to see it black and white, right? All Pakistan is bad, all Pakistan is good. And you know, I'm gonna say this. I'm gonna say this while we're recording. Should we even say the general's name, or should we just say gen- a general? I don't know if we want to. Yeah, let me. No, I I'm have thinking... to. I kind of have to. All right, I just want to make sure we don't get him in trouble. That's all. He's. I'm going to say it. Okay. It happened. He never told me not to. I it, 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 it the story doesn't work if I don't. Okay. And 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 and, this, and anyone who has half of a grain of knowledge cuz got him into the headquarters, they'll know who it was. Okay. Fair enough. And I they just, probably I, read his this, emails anyway. There there're plenty of of good guys and we just don't want to hurt anyone. Yeah, I know. I I I think we have to. I thought about that and just was like I mean, he did it openly. He did it openly from his email, his government email and stuff like that. Yeah. So. All right. Well, let's get into it. Just talk about the story a little bit. So in 2007, uh, General T- Tariq Khan, who was the commander of Pakistan's Frontier Corps, um, which is tasked with dealing with the tribal areas as well as some of the districts surrounding it, um, he invited me actually to come and take a tour of uh, of the Northwest Frontier Province with him, particularly go out to South Waziristan. So it would have been one of those, get on a helicopter, drive out, you know, fly out to the base, look, here we are, and then leave, right? But, you know, look, I was I was new to this, and it was uh, probably a lot younger and a, a lot stupider, and I thought, hey, this might be an excellent idea. Um, and I get to go to Pakistan, but one of my biggest concerns, um, you know, and he invited me, by the way, because of our, our, our coverage, of Pakistan, how what was going on in the northwest frontier? And he's legitimately the he's legitimately fighting the jihadis. He's legitimately yeah, yeah. Uh, you know doing the 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 right work as we view it and all this stuff. He's somebody who should be celebrated for doing the good work. You know, yeah. I um, asked around to friends and said, hey, uh, you know, what do you think of this guy? And everyone everyone I talked to said, yeah, he's the real deal. He's he's on our side. We couldn't do a lot of what we do out there, what little we do without his support. So. Um, now, Tom, uh, Tom greatly opposed this. Um, yeah, no, when you told me this, I, <laughs> I, I was going to drive down into Jersey and basically lock you in a closet you know, <laughs> myself at that point in time. I mean, listen, I mean, listen, we started off this, this, this episode with talking about Daniel Pearl and I, yeah. I mean, I just think there's so many scenarios where that would have played out. I mean, it's not like we're unknown, even, even though it was early on, we were still known enough in Pakistani jihadi circles at that point in time. And they couldn't guarantee your safety, and you got a wife and kids, and I just thought, what are you talking about? You're no, talking, and, and, you're, you're talking about going off to Waziristan. I'm just, just, I mean, I, when you first told me on the phone, I said, oh, you've got to be drunk or something. This is, this is insane, you know. So yeah, you know, look at this point in time, I was going out to Iraq. I've been to Afghanistan. I was doing it in bed with the military. Obviously, understanding going out with the Pakistanis. very, very different. Going very out different. With out. U.S. military, the Kurds, or something like that yep. in those war zones. This is a very a totally different scenario. Yeah. No, I no look, and and I had concerns as well. I was entertaining the idea, and not not enough um, concerns, Bill. Not enough concerns. <laughs> but go ahead. So yeah. you know, look, and, and in my my conversations with Khan, right? I I um, I told him I'm concerned. I said I, I I know I have enemies in Pakistan. I said I if I get in your custody, um, I will trust you to protect me. But how do I get to the airport from Peshawar to your headquarters? 
um, without disappearing. And so he, now keep in mind, you know, he's a soldier. I, I'm a former soldier. So he's, he's razzing me. He's telling me I'm afraid. He's mocking me, you know. And yet he couldn't secure travel from the headquarters. Um, I kept persisting with him and, you know, we're going back and forth. And then one day his headquarters, which was at a, a large hotel in Peshawar, was hit with a suicide assault. And I believe around 50 people or so were killed in the attack. Man, love just destroyed the hotel. And I get an email back from him about a day or two later. And he says, Bill, maybe now is not a good time to come to Pakistan. He <laughs> you said, think, yeah. And I said to him, you think, right, exactly. You know, and, and thinking about it afterwards, I never even considered the prospect of possibly being in his headquarters while a suicide attack gets in. But that's how, the in, in Peshawar at this time, the Taliban controlled a lot of the city. There, there were blockades. The, uh, it was... It was an absolute nightmare. They were enforcing Sharia in parts of the, of the city. Peshawar was one of the largest cities in Pakistan. So it, this was, the, this was the, um, uh, the environment that we were dealing with. But, you know, this is a guy who he went out there and he fought the Taliban. Um, he lost the hundreds of soldiers doing so. So while I can sit there and we can sit there and denounce um, the, the Pakistani establishment, we have to understand that there are individuals who are what we would consider you know to be heroic figures and it's so much harder for him to do what he does than say a military any, any other general like a u.s army commander to do in iraq or any other place because not only does he have an enemy that's committed but he's dealing with that nefarious element of the pakistani state that has no problems with letting people disappear yeah that's uh, it's, it's a sad sad case state of affairs but that's the reality of the whole thing Bill, I think we should uh, cut ahead to a couple other stories we have through uh, the years, including the time you were over, and I think it was in Germany, talking to the George C. Marshall uh, European Center for Security Studies, and tell a little bit about the reaction when you were talking about the Taliban and the Connies from you know folks you met there. And I've got a similar story. I think we should jump ahead to that. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do that. Um, yeah. So this was in, I want to say in the. March of 2016, get to fly over to Germany. I was stationed there for two years um, in the 90s, so I was really looking forward to going to Germany. But I was invited to talk about the the future of Pakistan. What would Pakistan, I'm sorry, the future of Afghanistan, what is it going to look like several years down the line, particularly if the U.S. withdraws or significantly cuts forces? And I remember saying to the individual who invited me, I said, look, I'm not going to you know, he said, oh, there'll be, you know, people from all kinds, all countries, you know, including Afghanistan and Pakistan. I said, I cannot discuss Afghanistan without talking about Pakistan. And I'm not going to be the guy that shows up to pull punches. It's just not in my nature. Um, tell me right now, if you don't want me to, you know, if I'm going to insult someone, you know, just let me know. And, you know, that's fine. He says, no, come, let's do it. So, you know, in the course of the discussion, I talk about the, you know, the good Taliban, bad Taliban come up. And, um, I, you know, start ta- explaining how the Pakistani military, you know, goes after the bad, but not the good. And there was probably four or five Pakistani military officers, uh, mid-level officers, captains, majors, lieutenant colonels. And they indignantly stand up and say, that's not true. You're, we're, we're targeting all of them. We're killing uh, the Haqqanis. We're killing Al-Qaeda. We're killing the movement of Taliban. I said, I believe you about the, the, the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan, and I believe you about al-Qaeda, but name me a single Haqqani network commander, um, operative, uh, the logistics guy, fundraiser, name me one, just one that you guys have killed in your operations. And they went silent and sat down, and I didn't hear another word from the Pakistanis on that issue because, you know, to me it was, you know, what we know, like, and it's possible that this stuff isn't advertised to not create pro- cause problems or whatnot. I don't believe it. But those Pakistan, the silence of those Pakistani military officers told me everything I need to know because they knew that it hasn't, it didn't happen. Because if it had, they would have named one. And meanwhile, the Khanis are killing Americans and Afghans in Afghanistan. They're targeting Americans, NATO forces. They're going after you know, American citizens, service members, Afghans, and they're committing some of the biggest attacks in the history of Afghanistan. So the biggest terrorist attacks that we know of in Afghanistan were, were launched by the Akhanis. 
you know, I had a similar experience. I was this is years ago now. It was just a it was just a bizarre episode. But I was down at uh, Joint <laughs> Joint Special Operations University in Florida, which is near Fort McDill. And I was given a lecture on terrorist groups and terrorist financing. You remember, Bill? It was like at one point it was like all about terrorist financing, right? So yes. you had to you had to frame everything when it came to terrorist financing. Okay, so I, I'm doing a presentation and I get to the the Taliban part of it and Taliban financing and what we know about it. And I got a similar objections both from the Pakistanis. So just to give some perspective, in this room there was I think there were over a hundred. Um, uniformed officers in the room. So you had like generals on down. I mean, you had a lot of big wigs from these foreign militaries were in the room. And then it's me, you know, giving this talk. And I'm just a nerd, you know, going over this stuff. And I get to the part about the Taliban and I have a similar reaction. The Pakistanis are indignant that I'm talking about the Taliban as a terrorist organization. And I also had a, a British officer start telling me, <laughs> you know, oh no, you know, the Taliban are terrorists. They're blah, blah, blah. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me, you know? I said, look, at this point in time, I forget when exactly this was, but I remember it was like the week prior, a Taliban suicide bomber had blown himself up in the middle of a market, killing a bunch of civilians. And I said, is that a terrorist act or not? You know, are you going to tell me that's not a terrorist act, given that the, the Taliban kills more civilians in Afghanistan than anybody else in terrorist attacks constantly? I mean, this is ridiculous. And of course, the Khanis, you know, which are part of the Taliban, are designated, become a designated terrorist organization. It's one of the contradictions in all this to this day is that the Taliban itself is not designated as a terrorist organization, whereas the Khanis are, and I guess in, as a, uh, in the FTO status within the U.S. I think that's right, right, Bill? Yeah, so I think that's Yeah, right. that's right. Yeah, it's one of the many contradictions here in all this. Um, doesn't really make any sense, even as Sir Juden Akani is the number two of the Taliban. You know, somehow the Taliban overall isn't, isn't designated. But it was sort of, you know, this whole finger-wagging episode. And I, I recounted the details and went through it and, and, and did a little bit of the bad Taliban, good Taliban routine as well and why that didn't make any sense. But, you know, at, at the end of the day, it really is this wheel of jihad thing, you know, where basically, you know, we don't have a, a denarius figure who's going to go in and break the wheel, you know, that's just going to keep on going. And the U.S. is looking to leave. That wheel is still spinning. And, you know, we can we can hope that nothing's going to come of it. We certainly do. But, you know, who knows going forward here? You know, Bill, I, I don't I don't see any reason to believe it's going to stop. I mean, I think that, I think, in fact, I think that the withdrawal from Afghanistan is probably going to be. Uh, it has the potential to sort of inject further life into the Frankenstein, right? The, the Jody Oh, I, I absolutely agree. The wheel's yeah. just going to start spinning faster and faster. I mean, and, you know, that I completely agree. What Pakistan is learning from all of this, from this mess, is that strategic death and support of jihadist groups, well, it works. The United States tried to fight it for almost 20 years and couldn't or wouldn't or both. Um, I believe both. Um, yeah, you know, you know at, one point on that, Bill, you know, that's so well said that, that, that that's that they've learned that, the Pakistani states learned that. And part of the reason they've learned that is the erratic policymaking by Americans, yeah, right? When you say right. couldn't or wouldn't, I mean, we had, you know, early on in the Obama administration, for example, you had the McChrystal Plan was put out, in which identified Pakistani safe havens, the Quetta Shur Council and others as big parts of the problem, Right. But there's never been any consistent policy by the Americans to take that on. You flash forward, you know, they dropped the ball on it. They just sort of, you know, decided they can't do anything about it. You flash forward years later in 2017, the Trump administration decides to get tough on Pakistani safe havens under uh, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. When he becomes national security advisor, he decides to put appropriately, in our, our view, entirely appropriately, put in a get tough on Pakistan safe havens uh, policy. Of course, that, that continues for a little bit while, and then all of a sudden they, they really drop interest in that, even though they withhold funds and they make a big stink out of it. And then all of a sudden, oh, we're going to forget about that. And now you go go to today, Bill, with the, the deal with um, Special Representative Khalilzad negotiating with the Taliban in Doha at the behest of Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. And you and I have witnessed this, and this is just amazing now to watch Khalilzad after all these years, to watch to watch all this and everything we've documented at FDD's Long War Journal, to watch the U.S. government now sort of bow down to the Pakistanis and, and proclaim them a partner for the peace, even though we know Khalilazad knows that's not true. Yeah, Tom, let's go back. I testified right next to him in front of Congress in July of 2016. It's literally congressional record. Just listen to this. And that first, Pakistan is now a state sponsor of terror. Uh, there is no question that the Pakistani military and the Pakistani intelligence agency the ISI, the Inter-Service uh, Agency, supports the Akhani network, uh, uh, which we regard, the United States has regarded as a terrorist organization. Uh, point two, it's also clear uh, that uh, the Pakistani military and Pakistani intelligence uh, provides sanctuary and support 
for the Taliban, uh, which is an extremist organization uh, that uh, uh, provided sanctuary for Al-Qaeda in the early period. And even recently, uh, the leader of Al-Qaeda, uh, Zawahiri, pledged allegiance to the new leader of the Taliban. Uh, so the, the relationship uh, continues. And yet, you know, within two years, he turns around and calls Pakistan a, um, you know, a partner that for peace. I mean, how, how does that happen? And there's no consistent policy, and he's an individual who's willing to do what it takes to get whatever prestige or whatever he is getting out of this. He's willing to, to change his opinions on the fly, and our entire policy is just whatever policy that is. It's just... It's incoherent. It's been incoherent for well over a decade and a half. You know, there was an opportunity to put the pressure on Pakistan. That drone campaign really created problems for the Pakistani military establishment. It was difficult for Pakistan to, to call itself the protectors of the Pakistani people when it can't let stop low flying, slow flying aircraft to just hover over its territory. Because look, the, fa- the reality is that the Pakistani military wanted to shoot down a U.S. drone. They could have done that, no problem. Those things fly under 200 miles an hour, and they just sort of fly figure eights up in the sky. The, the worst Pakistani jet in their arsenal will knock one of them out of the sky. Hell, they could get a biplane and, and, and go ahead and knock it out of the, out of the sky. And so it created problems, but we just squandered every time. We became fearful. What happens if those nukes get loose? Um, nukes get loose. What happens if there is a, a, a war between India and Pakistan? And meanwhile, all the while, we let the Pakistanis facilitate the murder of Americans inside of Afghanistan. And of course, the withdrawal agreement says not a word, not not boo about Pakistan. And that really tells you the whole story of the war in Afghanistan from our perspective. You know, if Ken Burns is alive to do a multi-part series for PBS on Afghanistan, as depressing as it is to watch through it, this would have to be an episode or two, be the the role of Pakistan in all this and how duplicitous the Pakistani military intelligence establishment is, a one-time Cold War ally for the U.S. that just decided that they weren't going to crack down the jihadis in the way that they needed to, from our perspective, should have. And this is something that, uh, you know, Bill, it's going to be something we're going to have to keep covering going forward, even after the U.S., assuming they they move forward with the withdrawal from Afghanistan, leaving the region isn't going to make the problems go away. It's something we're going to still have to keep covering going forward. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just see more problems for India. Um, I think we're going to see a continuing decline in Afghanistan. We're going to see the Taliban. Once, if the U.S. truly leaves, um, and I believe it's going to happen, you know, you're going to see parts of southern, eastern, southeastern, northeastern, even north, uh, southwestern, even areas in the north where the Taliban are strong. They're they're going. The Afghan military has not been able to clear out the Taliban when it took over cities without U.S. air power, special operations forces. They're going to, Afghan military is going to have to consolidate control and the Taliban, if they're good at what they do, it might take time. It might be, it might be bloody for them, but they're committed to doing it. And, you know, look, the, but the Pakistanis are going to continue. They've, they've been, their policy of strategic depth and support for jihadists, it's been, it's been verified as working. Why should they end it now? Particularly when they're not as, they're, they're never going to be as strong as India militarily, politically, or, or economically. You know, it's a country with probably what, like one eighth the population of India, um, a far more dysfunctional politically and, and economically. So it's got a, it, it, it has, um, it's a one trick pony. It knows that strategic depth works and it's going to continue it. And so, you know, you have regional actors are going to have to worry about this going forward. Of course, I think the Pakistanis are going to have to worry about this going forward because there's always the Frankenstein effect, which we talked about and touched on today, with, which with what you documented, what happened in northwestern frontier province and areas of, of Pakistan. And then I would say, you know, on a concluding note here, you know, even with the U.S. military desiring to get out of the war in Afghanistan, that doesn't mean that U.S. law enforcement and intelligence officials are going to have no job to do. It doesn't mean they're going to be out of business when it comes to tracking terrorist threats out of the region to Americans, of course. They're going to have to keep dealing with these issues going forward. Uh, and I think I, what we're worried about is that the victor's message, the victory message that we've already started seeing coming out of al-Qaeda and the Taliban and all this, uh, was, has the potential to be a boon for the global jihad once again. 
And that's really sort of what we're looking at. Whether or not there's another big plot is hatched from the region or not against the U.S. And, or, or its allies, the bottom line is that this has the potential to be a real shot in the arm for the jihadi movement uh, in a way that people are probably not really thinking about. In any event, uh, thank you again, everybody, for listening to this week's episode of Generation Jihad. Please do subscribe to the show. As a reminder, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to your shows. We'll see you again next week.